let me let me kind of reel back into you know earlier forms of art and what we defined as beautiful art. It it usually had a high level of realism. So like when we look at Da Vinci, right, when he's dissecting it, his whole goal was that art is already around us. Perhaps this is just me theorizing. Art is the reality itself, and, and so it's my job to convey that art and its and its much uh, excruciating detail as is necessary to get it right, quote unquote, that which is accurately mimicking the function of that as which is observable, right? And and so applying this this the same spectrum of thought. You know, at some point, the desire to mimic that which exists in the observative framework, it, it skews away, and and in, in in that in of itself is what makes it beautiful. How much is it is it changing that which is observed? Welcome back to season two of the Certain Uncertainty podcast. We hope everyone's having a great start to the new year in 2022, and we have a lot of exciting new content coming on the pod for this upcoming year. So to start off. Um, I hope you all enjoyed the search for meaning and final montage episode that we put out at the end of the year. And now looking forward to the new stuff that we have lined up for season two. We're excited to start welcoming guests onto the podcast. So another big step for uh, the new ideas and content that we'll be able to discuss and and hopefully explore some new uh, people and their their expertise. Right on, man. Yeah. So I guess with that, let's just jump right into today's uh, podcast episode. We have a couple of questions we're going to go through and uh, let's jump into it. So our first question is, what makes art timeless? Is there a connecting principle between art mediums? How does the experience of art shape the landscape of future interpretation? So there's a lot here that <laughs> might take more than just one episode, but we're going to try to launch into this and, and hopefully we tame the controversies of art itself. So what is it that makes art timeless? What makes it a span more than a few decades, for example? What makes an art, maybe it's a music piece, maybe it's a visual painting, maybe it's, you know, some kind of cooking, right? It could be really anything that's sensed by our human five senses. Uh, what makes that timeless in your eyes? Let's just start there. Yeah. So I think what was really interesting as we came to this ideation for this this topic was trying to look at pieces of music or pieces of artwork and then try and understand what aspects of something like that that make it so unique that it it stands the test of time. So especially things like music, when we think about what makes something classical or, or when we look at artwork in museums that are still just so unique and complicated and beautiful to observe and analyze. And what what aspects of these can we try and identify that make them so unique as a, as a timeless piece that, that continues to stay successful. And I think starting off with at least the art perspective and like art, artwork that has really like paintings, and such. Mm -hmm, like paintings or even, uh, sculptures as well. So I think sculptures is easier to start with, obviously, because the level of, um, detail and talent that goes into something so complicated, like some of the, the famous marble statues is obviously, um, incredible craftsmanship, but then into more kind of unique and dynamic territory is like paintings and sketches and, and really, really unique artwork. One of my favorite studies of, of school was art history and trying to look at what makes different pieces unique to their era. And I think when we start looking at what classically ties into art, all of the different time periods is Firstly, what it represents for that period, because that was their way of expressing the society, the culture, the challenges, the changes. So 
at first glance, a piece of artwork like that is is a, a window lens into history or a representation of what was happening at that time. But then what's interesting is if you subtract that, the subjective analysis of a piece of art, and you look at purely the color, color metric and visual representations, can we start to pick apart what makes this piece so advanced as to be perceived as so beautiful that it stands the test of time. And I think that's kind of where my thoughts are, are going right now. Right. Trying to deduce the metrics from a, and, and I, I mean, you know, color is just one variable, right? And I, I mean, I assume that you're, you're talking about the whole, I guess, context of the color, color palette with relationships to other color palettes that preceded it. And, you know, it's setting the stage for the next set of color palettes, but it's also about form and, and shape. And it's about, you know, um, not necessarily a unifying color palette always. Sometimes it's a, a chaotic frenzy of color palettes, and that's what makes the art piece, like with splatter paint, for example. There isn't really a unifying color palette, but that maybe is what the color palette is. It's non-uniform. Um, and, and so just kind of thinking about it from that lens, color doesn't necessarily, I think, provide the insight necessary to build out that timelessness. It, it is, we have to look at, like when it comes to paintings, we have to look at what were what were the stories that they were trying to tell within each one of these art forms. I think that's where, and that's very abstract and it's non-numerical, right? Which is our which is our problem. But maybe we can kind of whittle out into into the uh, numerical land as we kind of piece out what the story of an art form is trying to be, because at all levels the artist and they don't necessarily know what story is going to actually be interpreted from uh, and that we all vary in, in how we interpret colors and, and shapes and so forth and the morphology of these connections but you know there is a unifying story being told when they're initially you know it could be through technique through brush strokes right the, the roughness the 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 smoothness of the brush is what what binds the the violence of, of a piece perhaps maybe um, and, and so maybe we, we start there you know what are the what's the continuity of storytelling that was actually involved in the process of that artistic representation. In this case, it's a painting. Mm -hmm. uh, so let me let me just kind of pose that question for you. And, you know, maybe we can constrict it a little bit more. But what is a good story to tell within an art piece? Maybe we start there. Sure. I mean, when we're looking at the pieces that are in the most famous museums in the world, like the Louvre and in the Met and the MoMA or in Chicago, um, it's it's looking at the level of expertise and, and pure talented crafts, craftsmanship that went into, you know, picking every single size of brush and the layering and the, the co combination of oils and different pieces to represent, you know, different shades and depths. And as we look at the progression of art through different cultures and periods, you can very clearly see the the changes and, and familiarities that kind of got carried with and that got left behind as as only changes in society happened. So when, when we look at art and study the different paintings from hundreds and thousands of years, you can see that maybe their, their, their physical tools didn't actually change very much. It was the capabilities and, and depth to which people were able to express an idea onto a piece of artwork. And I think when we look at what is a good story to tell, or at least how do we tell a good story through artwork, my first kind of thought as we as we look at the most famous pieces is the level of 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 relationship and i guess feelings that are manifested in in the person who's actually observing that artwork and i think that is what 
is the the great line of a, of a truly masterful artist is that when you can look at something and have an emotion attached with it, or it invokes some set of feelings that you, that you didn't know that you would be able to express toward just this two-dimensional object with a three-dimensional representation. And I think that is what's most unique and special, but the real question is, you know, how, how do you do that? And I think it's the same way in music. Like when you can listen to a piece of music and clearly tell that this combination of notes is melancholy or sad Mm -hmm. or uplifting and motivational, it's just music. It's music. It's mathematical relationships between patterns that somehow allow us to perceive a feeling associated through that music. But it's like, we were never taught that you were never told that like this music is, is powerful and uplifting where this one is, you know, saddening and, and calming. It's just that it innately exists within you and the way you perceive things. And it could be very similar to a piece of artwork where you may be looking at something that represents uh, the French revolution and, you know, the, the the number of people who sacrificed their lives and passed away, but you may not know that. So say you're just looking at a piece of artwork and the talent that went into the, the contrasting colors, the depth, maybe the expressions on faces is invoke, it invokes emotion. And I think that's, that's how you would try and tell the best story is it makes people feel what the story represents. Okay. Right. So, I mean, there's this emotional extraction from the story that is being told, and there is perhaps some variation in the emotional interpretation thereof. Mm-hmm. Right. So let me, let me ask, does a good story have a constrained set of emotional experiences that can come out of it? Or does it have a highly variable one, meaning that it's applicable to a lot of different lenses versus, you know, you see the story, you feel the specific way. It's going to be melancholy, right? There's, there's no, there's no, you know, wiggle room, right? That is what it is. That's the story that's being told. Or do you think a, a good, you know, good being subjective here, good being one that is defined by most preferential to a larger set of audience members, right? That's what I'm using the word good. But does the good story then, you know, a truly good one have this this variation in that uh, emotional atmosphere? Let's call it. Um, or right, or, or before, you know, just straight melancholy, one emotion. What do you, what do you think? I mean, I think this is, this is the subjective element to it, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious. I would think that it's purely like subjective because you and I could look at the same piece of artwork and from our different life experiences have completely different associated emotions. If we've experienced something, you know, similar to it before, or have never seen it, you're going to have completely different thoughts about right. what, what comes to mind, but say we're both, you know, starting from the same baseline and we look at a piece of artwork, should we theoretically have the same reaction? Say we're like identical twins, not even like identical, but like a clone, right? Would we theoretically have the same reaction looking at a piece of artwork? If we had the same prerequisite experience? Yeah. That's I mean, it, it really depends on us having a uniform interpretation for all prerequisite elements, Mm -hmm. which I mean, by our own biology is essentially impossible just because we have such levels of variation that have trickled through our own genetics and that our our, our interpretation is going to have some changing element as a Mm -hmm. function of that. And so, no, (laughs) right. But, but I mean, there is a really good point there in that when you're evaluating a piece of art, it is less about that piece of art and more so about all the other pieces of art that came before it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that then binds the spectrum in which you are able to view it. The experience of art conditions yourself to then 
look for key elements in the the present art form that you're looking at, mm-hmm. right? It's because you've seen so many uh, previous art forms that had this human shape that when you see this kind of inorganic human shape, it caught, catches your eye, mm-hmm. right? Because you have a trained eye for a specific way of viewing the human body, let's say. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, the the artistic uh, impression of it is is much more impactful simply because it's different than the other earlier forms. And I think, you know, whenever we're looking at different artistic renaissance moments, it is because they've taken the morphology of a specific type of art context and, and, and bended it in a way that uh, almost creates like a distraction. It's like an eyesore. And it's like, you know what? What the hell is that doing there, mm-hmm. right? Why? Why is this you know bodily dis- disformation suddenly you know in front of so many people? It's because it, it is an eyesore, and that eyesore then transforms into something of beauty because it it shifted a fundamental starting perception on how to view art in the first place. Mm-hmm. It added more variables or or more key points to look at, more uh, abstract focal points non-indicated by the the visual itself it's a focal point in reference to another piece of art that came before it yeah yeah i mean when you when you were talking about like the the trained eye and like how say you you know because you've seen it before you've studied what you know an anatomical body is supposed to look like and i remember that the first thing that comes to my mind when you said that was um da vinci who was such a fantastically talented artist that everyone's so familiar with. And something cool that I I learned about at one time was that he would dissect, you know, cadavers in order to understand the anatomical muscles and layers in the body so that he could, you know, paint and, and, and sculpt these incredible figures. And it's that level of, I think, dedication and knowledge that really pushes that to the next level that could make something so talented that it becomes timeless. But what really makes me excited and curious to like still think about this topic is there are prodigies in three, what did they say? Like three fields or three or so fields where they say you can be a prodigy in math, chess, or music, mm-hmm. right? Something like that. So I think a fourth would probably be art. So when I, th- when you think about the concept of a prodigy is someone who is so incredibly talented at a topic, even though they have not had, you know, extensive studying and, and teaching and mentorship in, in that area where you can have someone that's just so good at the piano or guitar that they're able to recreate sounds and they can put exactly what's in their mind into this piece. And that is so interesting to me because that means that they have some sort of overlapping fundamental between between the four of those. So what is the connecting principle? And we, we asked this question initially, right? Is, you know, and I, I would be careful because the fourth, the art, I would say art is embedded within the three. You know, I think chess is a form of art. I think math is a form of art and that it is an abstraction of something that doesn't really exist. Yeah. It is something that holds an imaginary value uh, and then because of that imaginary value, we call it art mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, it, it, it serves some function other than what is given by the words used to describe it. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, a number has no value unless it is a number that is talking about some material thing. You know, I have three cups of coffee. Mm-hmm. Right. Three is some arbitrary artifact of communication that only signifies meaning when we have this material association to it. Mm-hmm. And and chess is no more than, than a, a, another facet of associating pieces. 
to it, right? Your, your piece is the medium. Each one of those chess pieces is a different brush, the different stroke in which you can, yeah. you know, move the pen on, on the paper, right? And, and each one has its own function. Um, and, and, and so I'm going to kind of shift gears a little bit because we have these tools, right? We have these chess pieces, we have these brushes, we have these, you know, audio synthesizers or pianos or musical instruments. And, and, and like you said, there, there is this defining principle that the prodigy uses to then relate whatever they're thinking inside to the outside world. And it has some level of accuracy in mimicking the actual thoughts that are purveying in that individual's mind. And so there, there's something there in, in the concept of mimicry, right? And so like, let me, let me kind of reel back into, you know, earlier forms of art and what we defined as beautiful art. It, it usually had a high level of realism. So like when we look at Da Vinci, right, when he's dissecting it, his whole goal was that art is already around us, perhaps. This is just me theorizing. Art is the reality itself. And, and so it's my job to convey that art in its, in its much uh, excruciating detail as is necessary to get it right, quote unquote, that which is accurately mimicking the function of that as which is observable, right? And, and so applying this, this, this same spectrum of thought you know, at some point, the desire to mimic that which exists in the observative framework, it, it skews away. And, 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 in, and in that in and of itself is what makes it beautiful. How much is it is it changing that which is observed, mm-hmm. right? How much is it actually mimicking? Um, and, and it's all in context, too, right? Because if I have a lot of realism pieces, my eye begins to blur all the features because it's just too much to look at and it's not... Uh, as artistic. It's not as creative because it's not bending the will of that which I'm already seeing. Mm-hmm. It needs to, you know, it needs to bend the will of how we are originally perceiving this thing, whatever it may be. Maybe it's a human being. Maybe it's a uh, emotion. You know, I didn't know melancholy could feel like that when I'm listening to a musical yeah. piece. You know, I didn't know that melancholy had that depth. What do you mean? What Melancholy is an emotion. You're applying, you know, between the other two emotions, some some value within those two, right? And, and, and if within that connection of the emotions itself, the value exists in between. Mm-hmm. Um, you see what I'm saying there? Yeah. yeah. No, and it's, it's, it's fascinating because when we think about like the whole range of emotions and almost personalities, like say emotions are like the amino acids to a personality as they are to a protein, right? And when you think about like the, the capability of a specific length of notes when put together individually, nothing, but when put together, they represent or can invoke a feeling is one of the most unique things that I think we we have just so readily available to us is you can hear something and see something and with no other, you know, physical obstructions or, or alterations to your current state, you can actually change how you're feeling with that addition. And I know this is even something that's used in, in new therapeutic models, but without going that way, it makes me wonder when we look at the actual mathematical representations that could exist in a piece of music or artwork it's it's like a two it's like a puzzle or a lock and a key essentially where it's like we have the ability to perceive that in the way that it is created so it makes me wonder is there undiscovered levels of you know musical combinations that can make you feel a way that you've never felt before what is the current form of the lock that humans reside in Right. Because it's a lock and key model. Right. Meaning that you have the key, which in this case is the art form and the lock is the interpreter. Yeah. What shape is the interpreter? 
And so like, this is what we were saying before, the sequence of the art that they uh, see beforehand shapes that lock. So, you know, only then only a certain level of keys are going to work for them because mm -hmm. over time, every, every art piece just slowly, subtly shifts the actual lock so that that, that key fits into. Mm -hmm. um, it's like if you every single day came back to your house and would have to switch your keys and go back to the shop and, you know, change out the key. Right. Because yeah. every day that lock is changing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is, you know, the interpretive lens that we sit on mm -hmm. as we're growing and developing preference, we're developing opinions. Um, and so this is where I, I was kind of trying to bring up this idea of, of story and the associative mimicry involved in it, because I think that's kind of that that's our first like numerical lens we can look at it what level of mimicry how how well is this fictional story told in this art piece mm -hmm. re relative to what actually is observed by a larger group of people mm -hmm. right because that, that's what it is art, art is art is a observative framework that we're resting on and then slightly tweaking well maybe not tweaking because we're observing it and that's what it is but it's it's slightly tweaking reality as is seen by others mm -hmm. you know but to the person who's creating the art, that's that's their reality, in a sense. Um, they they know no other way of thinking of it. I mean, think about like right. the surrealism in like Dali, like Salvador Dali, who took in incredibly abstract approaches to his artwork and had the 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 melting clock, you know, over the over the edge of an infinite an infinite ledge, mm, and yeah. all of the the really abstract pieces of artwork that came from from his representation and era. When we look at something like that, it it starts to question everything but reality or what's in reality. So there's like two really unique schools or far more than two, but compared to the, the, the hyper-realism of a painting that's so detailed or representative of just the actual image of the reality or the, the story that was being told in that, that framework, like something like the revolution. And then when you go so far as to create a piece of artwork that is a physical representation of the abstracts that are in existence like time, like the perception of time, like the, the, the physicality of consciousness and emotions. He was able to create, you know, visual representations of that, which is super, super cool. Right. And it's the, it's the mimicry, like you were talking about. Would, would, would you say, so this is going to be a tough one, but would you say that that fiction, so like the scene that he created, like, you know, with the dripping clocks, the melting clocks, or that's the same guy, right? Yeah. Um, would you say that the fictional scene he created is actually true? Meaning that maybe that scene doesn't actually exist in reality, but the thoughts it creates are real and are concrete and are applicable to multiple situations. 100%. And so it's less that the visual scene, there's not a literal truth to the art, but there is an abstracted truth of it. Um, and that all art has its own unifying truth, but it is not literal, meaning you can't observe it as well. Mm -hmm. You can only observe it through the lens that they're pushing it through. In this case, the melting clocks represent something. I, I won't get into the interpretation of it, but you, you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. that there is a distinction between a, a literal truth of an art piece, meaning like, you know, how, how well does it actually relate to reality? And then an abstracted truth, which is how applicable is the perception that it creates in that individual who's observing it? Mm -hmm. How applicable is that to other things in their life? Yeah, I think absolutely. It it goes kind of hand in hand with the level of expertise and talent that go into 
manifesting something like that, where you can take an abstract truth or thought that exists within your, your mind and to create artistic representations of a whole idea and the interpretations of artwork like, like Dolly are so cool to me because you get to think about some of these kind of far out there ideas about the questions of our existence and our perceptions and, you know, emotions and have those recreated in a way that makes sense without having to have words or explanations go along with it, I think is the true, you know, metric of, of artwork that stands, stands the test of time and makes it truly classic or classical and that it, it doesn't matter what, what period you're looking at this piece in, it will still make sense. And it's, it's cool to me that the thoughts that mm. they had then at that time are the same thoughts that we have now at this time. And I think that's what makes it, you know, transcendent across generations and generations and in different periods of time, yeah. especially like music, like when you can listen to the true complexity and, and beauty of like Beethoven, it can still invoke the exact same, or maybe not the exact, but very, very similar emotions as the people that listened to it way back when he wrote it, which is really cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm stuck on this idea of what makes sense. And, and when he, uh, let me, let me explain a little bit. So there's this quote and I'm going to butcher it. I don't remember exactly, but I'll just explain the concept here. But the, the, the concept is basically when you're seeing a whole bunch of people moving chaotically, it is only when you apply the music in the background that you realize they're dancing. Mm. Right. And, and so in some sense, the, the art form itself needs the context of, of other things. And so that's what makes it make sense. Right. It's it's almost like the combination of art pieces is an absolute necessity to understand its actual artistic value. It is a combinatorics problem of itself. And so when it said when we say like it makes sense, given the time, it is also about it makes sense, given uh, the stimuli in that current time. Right. When I'm looking at these people moving their bodies, it's crazy to me. And then I and then I start hearing the music and I'm like, oh, they're listening to like electro drums, like makes sense. You know, yeah. you're like doing some rave dances and it's all good yeah. to go. Yeah. Right. And like before I was like, are these people all like on drugs? You know, and it's like, no, like, no, they're just listening to some electro drums, <laughs> you know, which is a drug in and of itself. But I, I won't go there. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you see what I mean? Like, what do you think it means to like make sense? Like when I look at an art piece and, and I'm just like, that just makes sense. Like, what am I saying? I feel like it has to be the patterns. So our, our innate visual capabilities of recognizing patterns that exist in things. Our brains are designed to see that everywhere we look, we're looking for patterns, the feelings of visual patterns, um, the feelings that we, that we, that we create from those are all all patterns. It's our, it's our brain's way of learning what makes sense. Otherwise, if, or if we didn't have that capability, everything we looked at would look like just a, a messy nothing. You would never be able to wait. You would, you would never find a way to be able to forage for something, complete a task, look through complex layers of you know, leaves and earth and animals. And I think without getting too far into the actual survival and, and developmental levels of, of visual pattern recognition, it's now in the other lens or the other, the other half of that, that scope, which is we are smart enough and intelligent enough as a species to be able to look at something and have a level of appreciation for the specific patterns that were put together in this representation. And I think when we look at something like artwork and say, why does this, why does this even make sense? Like, like Andy, Andy Pollock, right? 
uh, or Andy Warhol, sorry, Andy, Andy Warhol, Warhol. Yeah, yeah. who did like the the mess, like the completely random splatter paint kind of stuff. And you look at that and you just goes, this is nothing, but it's also really cool. And it's like, how do you, how do you make sense of the chaos? And I think that is one of the most interesting psychology related pieces of artwork because there's, there's really cool analyses out there that talk about the level of randomness and chaos in his artwork and his paintings that are so well balanced and the people who feel an emotional rise come from that artwork have inner relatability to those pieces, whether it be chaos or seeing this level of chaos in front of your eyes actually brings you some peace inside. And there's really cool analyses that talk about that. Mm, my, my first question is just trying to figure out the relative chaos that a piece might need to be. Is that is that mostly related to the surrounding uh, environment, right? So if I put a chaotic art piece on a wall of graffiti, for example, mm -hmm. will that art piece have the same value as if I just put it on a white canvas, right? And yeah. so it's a, the art piece itself is super chaos, right? So graffiti versus the white background, right? But my, my thinking is that, you know, the inherent sense of contrast and the white background and then the chaotic painting would, would mean the most uh, attention grabbing art piece and therefore the most interpretive because it's grabbing my attention versus the graffiti, which is adding all the background static. And then I'm not able to actually, you know, pick a focal point yeah. and interpret the, the value of the art. Um, and, and so I, I guess what I'm getting at is that, uh, again, the art piece itself is not as important as what, what came preceding it and what exists around it. Mm -hmm. Um, like when I look at the Mona Lisa and I don't mean this in a bad way, but when I'm looking at the Mona Lisa and if you ever go to the blue and you actually see all the people with their, you know, iPhone cameras up and it, it ruins the piece for me. Right. It, it does. Right. It, it's not as as esoteric, right? It's, it's, it, it, in itself just changes how I interpret it. Cause it's a small little piece and there's always, you know, iPhone cameras in my face. And I, I, I simply can't evaluate the art piece for what it is. Yeah. Right. And, and all of a sudden, you know, the art piece doesn't really have its own place. Now it's muddied up by all the hands in the air. Mm -hmm. um, which is all part of the art in that, you know, whatever I'm seeing, whatever I'm observing creates the artistic landscape from which I'm making my interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was gonna say that's the added layer that goes on top of any like experience. And it's like not only what you're looking at in the exact focal point, but the, the other layer on top of that is the immersive environment in which you're, you're viewing something. It also changes the experience 100%. And I think that level is really cool as it gets worked into performances. When you think about like how an, uh, a museum is orchestrated when you have to go through and is there an actual intentional pattern or not pattern, but order yeah. sequence in which these were placed. And that is in itself super cool to think about like the story that could be told right. between multiple pieces of artwork pieced together. And when we think about like the, the capability we have in our own mind to group up periods paintings together and say, you know, these all have similar characteristics and similar ways of telling a story. And they come from the same period. It's the school of thought that is from the Renaissance or proto-Renaissance mm. or, you know, medieval period. When you look at what, what were they talking about and how did they represent it? We can inherently look at that analysis. But if you were to try to teach a computer to make that, make that level of, 
of uh, comparison between periods of artwork, how would you teach a computer to look at artwork and say these are these are similar period or these are not similar period? You would not say that these are you know overlapping story uh, modalities. I, and I and I think our, our our metric here is its level of mimicry. Mm-hmm. I think that is where I keep going. It's like how well. So like what I would do is I'd take a bunch of pictures of Earth. And I would basically try to get it experienced in what earth looks like. Mm-hmm. What is, you know, trying to get the depth, get all the elements, just, you know, massive amount of photos of the earth, of ways of perceiving the earth. Right. And then over time, look at the relative mimicry in those photos relative to the art form itself. Mm-hmm. And you could create some kind of trend of mimicry. And I'm curious, you know, it's just one variable. But I, I'm wondering if that variable itself is most salient in being able to understand trends of of artistic thinking. Um, you know, like like like, for example, all of math is essentially a mimicry engine. How well can I create some abstract understanding of this that will work no matter what that this is in any environment? I can put this this in a, in a glass of water and, and, and my, my, my function will still work or I can throw it up in the air and, and it'll still work. Yep. Right. It's, it's an assessment of mimicry in relationship to the dynamic nature of, of Earth. So maybe, you know, going back to the computer, how do I teach the, the computer to assemble that sequence? I'd probably need videos too, mm-hmm. right? I, I would need something observing a, a, a dynamic environment, right, in the same way that we are. I mean, I mean, to your point, mathematics is the only vocabulary that we have to, to represent our existence. In a mimicable way. Yeah. Right. Like we could tell so you could tell a story, you could write an entire book. Reproducible. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You cannot recreate reality with a story. Even the most detailed story could not fully recreate our reality. Mathematics is the only vocabulary that we have to to recreate or reproduce a, a physical existence. Right. And this is the, how all the, you know, virtual AR, this is what the systems they work on. They work exactly. on our fundamental understandings of math to recreate something of familiar association, mm-hmm. which we call the natural environment around us. Um, and so, so coming back to it, let's, let's try to get in at this timeless question uh, and kind of wrap it up in a nutshell here as a function of perhaps mimicry or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a function of relative mimicry perhaps is, is a more more accurate right we have the renaissance era which is you know pretty hyper realistic and then all of a sudden we move into you know the the more abstract forms of, of morphology and then following in the 19th century and so forth and, and you know there's a huge just mimicry you know change right there how well does that match something that we can actually pick up and see and touch yeah, yeah. right I, I don't know what, what, what are your thoughts there like how do we, what are the other variables that we're missing is, is what I'm, what I'm trying to get at for like the most timeless understanding of art. I think if you were to have a way to either quantify a piece of artwork, which is so difficult because there's so many subjective variables that you have to, I mean, it may be near impossible because there's so many subjective variables that you have to account for. But if you were to give some sort of a value score to a piece of timeless art, if you were to include the subjective capability of storytelling and the the balance of detail to um, three-dimensionality in something, and then also 
know, maybe the, the emotional, um, existence or, or derivation that comes from viewing a piece of artwork. I think if and it sounds weird, if you were to give those each a score and the score is high enough, then it would surpass the threshold to be timeless. And, mm-hmm. and there, there may be a far better way to, to try and describe what could make something so unique that it, it will last forever. But Right. And, and there's a there's a filtering function for each medium, mm-hmm. depending on what what senses it's stimulating. And if it's a combination of senses, like if it's uh, a music with 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 an art, like a dance form in front of it. Right. There's two 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 sounds. Mm-hmm. There is a filtering needed to assess that level of threshold, um, you know, and again, to me, it just keeps going back to this mimicry function where it's like, could I do that too? Yeah. You know, could I could I recreate that? Like, and, and I think this is what made plays so 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 popular back in, in their early early days is that they were just mimicking human behavior in perhaps a satirical way, which which allowed it to stray from that mimicry into a a new way of perceiving how things could have transpired. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, I I feel like that's that's more or less my my answer to the timeless question is we have to understand its relative mimicry uh how relatable is it mm-hmm. right yeah. i mean it's yeah. it's a it's a pretty easy way of, of but i mean it's more than just how relatable it's how relatable in context which is a really hard question yeah. and hence it's it's you know uh, subsequent numerical impossibility <laughs> it's because mm-hmm. we can't calculate all the prerequisite experiences of each individual human and then take the convolution of all of those experiences yeah. into one you know trend of yeah. <laughs> beauty let's call it yeah. Um, I don't know. That's, that's where I, where I kind of think about that. Yeah. I think when, when thinking about like the, the, the muscle or maybe the spectrum that you have to appreciate a piece of music or artwork, it's, I would put it on the same scale as the, like the ability to go through sensory deprivation all the way to the other end. So it's on this range of say all the way on the, the, the right side or whatever you have the most you know, extreme reaction to a piece of artwork. Like when you see people that are looking at art at a museum and it's so beautiful that they actually start crying or they're at a a musical performance and they're so connected to this, this experience that people actually start, they start crying, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's, it evokes such strong emotions for whatever reason, and then go all the way to the left and the other end of that spectrum. I would put that as that's, that's when you're in full sensory deprivation and the whole science behind what that does to your, your biology is, is fascinating mm-hmm. and it could be an interesting topic, but I think it's a good spot to leave you all thinking and, and wrap up. Agreed. Agreed. And, uh, you know, just closing notes. Thank you so much for watching. And, uh, this has been episode 18 of the certain uncertainty podcast. Thanks everyone. If you made it this far into the podcast and want to hear more content, please consider following us on Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube and sharing today's podcast link with your close friends. We hope this podcast incites you to start some interesting conversations and expand on some of the ideas we've discussed. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Certain Uncertainty Podcast, a podcast aimed at unveiling the certainly uncertain relationships between some of the most complex systems known to man.